Greetings, A-poppers and anthropology enthusiasts. I'm Shane Skaggs, and you're listening to A Story of Us, a podcast led by the anthropology graduate students at The Ohio State University. This podcast is dedicated to anthropological research and practice, so stay tuned to hear more about our humanity and beyond. You can find all of our previous episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. If you enjoy our content, please leave us an epic review and share this podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues, or give us a shout out on social media. Be sure to follow A Story of Us on Instagram, at A Story of Us OSU. For additional content or to learn more about our events and programs or learn more about anthropology in general, follow the Anthropology Public Outreach Program at Ohio State APOP or check out our website at u.osu.edu slash APOP. This is the fourth episode of our engagement series. I'm joined by the freshly minted Dr. Mark Anthony Arsenio. Dr. Arsenio is a food anthropologist with expertise in food, place, and identity, multi-sensory ethnography, and social ecological systems. Mark Anthony recently finished his dissertation on changing Vitivini cultures in central Ohio and Alsace, eastern France, and he's now working as an academic program coordinator for the Comparative Studies Department here at Ohio State. Mark Anthony has served and continues to serve as our team leader for the Ohio State APOP lecture series. He's the chair of special events and programming for Slow Food Columbus and the editor of Cultural and Agriculture Sensorium. So welcome, Dr. Arsenio. Thanks so much for having me. It's still, um, you know, something I need to get used to hearing. But <laughs> And first of all, let me just congratulate you again for completing your PhD. Thanks so much. So one question we like to ask everyone that comes on the podcast is, uh, what is your personal definition of anthropology? Yeah, so as I've shared with um, students in the past, I think, you know, you look at the Greek roots of anthropology, anthropos and logos, so the study of humans, um, but even more so and um, really timely with this, the title of this series in particular, um, I think anthropology is engagement. Um, I know there are other universities that define anthropology in those terms. And I think it's, for me, it's that engagement with um, the human condition and with humans in the past and the present um, and, you know, looking into the future. Um, and even beyond that, I think it's our engagement with the greater social and environmental world in which we're situated. Um, it's the way that we're interacting with different species, the different tools that we're creating and how that's reshaping who we are. And so it's engagement with all of that. Mm. Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, there's, there's a lot of dimensions um, and it, we're engaging with all of them. One thing that listeners love to hear about is the origin stories of the people that come on the podcast. So why did you become an anthropologist and in particular a food anthropologist? Yeah, so hopefully the origin story isn't um, too long-winded, but I'll start from the, from the very beginning. I was, I was born in the Philippines, came to the U.S. Uh, when I was five months old, um, and being raised as this you know, one-and-a-half generation um, Filipino immigrant, I didn't have um, the language to connect me to that um, part of my identity. Um, I overheard it with my parents and, and the people that I was surrounded with. Um, but one way to really be latched onto that identity was through the food, um, through the things that 
uh, my parents cooked and our family friends and recognizing there's a different recipe for everyone's egg rolls and and pancit canton and, and that sort of thing. And as I you know went through my my education through high school and undergrad, um, I ended up double majoring with French and international studies and then double concentrating in ethnic studies and public policy. And then turning into grad school, you know, I wanted to try and find this one route to kind of bring it all together and, and make sense of it where ideally I could do all of those things. And it's one of those things that I turned to anthropology as potentially a way to do that. If I could do research in France, I checked that box off and get to do the international studies piece. And through the ethnic studies stuff that I did, there's this international dimension to what it means to be us and them and, and the other and how do we understand that. Um, and so for me, anthropology was a way to bring it all together. When I was an undergrad, I, I studied abroad in South Africa and in France. Among all the different host families and the communities that I visited, one of those things that really ended up linking together was this notion of how ethnicity or these cultural identities are merging together with language and the food that they're eating. Uh, turning to South Africa, there's this, this legacy of apartheid where people are still kind of situated in the general geographic areas where they were dispersed. And so you have these languages that are still grouped in different areas. And at the same time, these foods that are very much attached to those individuals and going into France, you know, a country that is, I think it's barely as big as Texas. You have all of these different varieties in different regions that you've got, um, again, very distinct in terms of regional dialect um, on top of the French language and these very different regional cuisines. And so how did all these pieces play together and what does that mean to have this place-based identity rooted in your language and your culture and the food that you're eating. And so those are the sorts of questions that sparked um, that I felt like I could be studying in grad school. And it's, you know, one of those things where when I tell people I'm a food anthropologist, not many people recognize that that's even a thing. And I think it's become a, a trending or a popular area of study, I think, over the last few decades. We were just talking, uh, a group of us in APOP, about how there are these sub-subfields that sort of stand alone. And I think you're certainly right. Food anthropology is one of those. And hearing your origin story, you can really see where your definition of anthropology comes from, right? Like engaging with all of these different places and these different dimensions of sort of the human experience. And that takes us to, you know, my next question, which is, Tell us more about your research, um, your field sites, and the people you conduct your ethnographic research with. By and large, I focus on terroir and the taste of place, and this notion that the particularities in the soil, the altitude in which our groups are grown, the wind, the amount of moisture, um, all of that collectively um, result in this nuance and particularity in the way that a, a given wine tastes. At the same time, there's this um, social dimension that a lot of anthropologists and researchers have tuned into, which is the knowledge and all of the perspectives that the wine growers or the people impart on the wine itself. And so when you take a look at you know, the great landscape of things, a Riesling that's produced in Michigan, even though it can be grown there with that particular climate, um, will most likely taste different from a Riesling from Alsace because of the immediate environment, because of the different ways in which wine growers tend to produce those wines, the traditions that are in place there. And so if we take a look at the sense of terroir and this, this notion that something tastes a particular way, um, one of the questions that I have is, well, what happens when you look at changing climate where one area is getting colder or warmer than another? Or even if there are different financial and legislative constraints placed on, on individuals, to conduct the research, then I went to, um, to Central Ohio. We've got six sites here. And then 
more of a comparative perspective with wine growers in in Alsace and Eastern France. And again, six wine growers there and, and then a few others that I had visited. And as I'm mentioning, you've got wine growers who are people who grow grapes and they produce wine. And so they have this whole experience and this particular relationship with the vines in their care that folks who only grow grapes or only make wine don't necessarily have. And so when I took a look at these two sites, I wanted to make sure that I was at least working with people who were producing um, wines from grapes that they're growing and have that relationship. Relatively speaking, the ones in central Ohio have just by sheer number of years, less time involved with the wine growing process, or some of them have been growing for less than a decade, and some of them have grown for a decade or two. Whereas in Alsace, you've got wine growers who have been in their families have been growing intergenerationally over many decades. And so even when we look at something like climate change, the experiences that wine growers are facing are, are having um, are different in different contexts. Here we're in central Ohio, the climate variability and the way that different weather patterns are informing decisions, whereas you have a longer time period to look at and a bit more data and, and knowledge and memory associated with climate change over decades. Um, and so those different things all piece together and inform the way that wine growers make decisions, the way that they understand and adapt to the environment that's changing and how they're actually going about doing that. So as you've worked in all these different places, what kinds of things did you do with the wine growers? What kinds of you know, activities and methods did you use? I first started off with um, with walking interviews with each of the wine growers. And so that gave them the opportunity to show me what they thought were moments of change or um, sites of change in their particular vineyard wine cellar or tasting room. And, you know, as I was walking through the fields, hearing the difference and feeling that difference of really um, wet, saturated soils in central Ohio versus the drier ones and the leaves crunching um, in Alsace, um, as you might be hearing um, right now, you know, take this audio that you hear is from a tour that I did in, in October. And so looking at the landscape of you know, vines that had already been picked and also feeling the drier soil that by that point might be indicative of the drought that they had experienced over that summer. All of those different sensory inputs came to fruition at that point, as well as then semi-directed interviews and then participant observations where I got to even feel the soil. I remember when I first felt that the vines like smacking me in the head as, almost as in revolt that I'm about to, to cut those, those kinds of um, haptic cues as well were definitely part of the research process. And in addition to that multisensory experience, there were also, you know, this multi-species experience as well of paying attention to the birds that are out in the vineyards. Um, and in some cases, the silence of birds. Um, was that potentially a change in the migratory pattern? Um, were those what I, you know, what I found to be good or bad birds, depending on who you talk to? What is the role of, you know, the bees in the, in the field in terms of pollinating or being attracted to the fermenting grape juices? All of these different inputs from either the sensory or the multi-species world um, definitely informed the actual acts of pruning and harvesting and even, you know, tasting wine that I did with the wine growers. Yeah, listening to you describe all of this just reminds me of why it's so enjoyable to go tour a winery or visit a brewery or anything like that and go behind the scenes and sort of cool to see how it's done but it's also like all of these senses that you're talking about you have you get a little momentary piece of the process that goes into ultimately what you're sipping 
Yeah, we talk about participant observation and the sense of the visual. The more input you can put into that through your sensory faculties, um, I think that clearer that picture becomes. You know, in some of your work, you've mentioned that there's a lot of changes that are happening, a lot of environmental, economic changes, social changes. So what kinds of changes are wine growers facing and how are they adapting to those? In central Ohio, what, what I've been seeing is that um, we're just experiencing much more rain and humidity um, that's just making it a little bit more difficult to figure out when to, you know, when to harvest. If it's too wet outside, you're not going to go out and harvest the grapes because then um, the sugars and, and the flavors of the grapes are going to be diluted from all of that. We're also experiencing large, uh, more consistent bouts of freezing temperatures and the effects of all of that. I know that a lot of the wine growers are still reeling from the polar vortex years of 2014 and 2015 and the damage that that had done to crops. On the other side of, of the Atlantic, you see that um, Alsace, at least, is experiencing drier conditions and they're experiencing forms of, of drought at that point. And so, you know, you've got water stress that, that's becoming an issue for the grapes. And so how are they trying to navigate that? And so you've got two different kind of environmental changes happening within the context of global climate change that perhaps is instigating the kinds of things that they're doing to adapt to those situations. Um, so for those in central Ohio, they're looking at crops or at varietals that perhaps can withstand colder, colder temperatures that we're experiencing. In Alsace, you're looking on some level at ones that are that can withstand drought conditions, but maybe they're also looking at different pruning techniques to kind of create shade and create cooler environments for the for the grapes to find ways to do that. And given these environmental constraints that are happening, you also have legislative constraints that make it a little um, bit more challenging in one area versus the other. In central Ohio, there's only, or in Ohio in general, you need to grow some certain percentage amount of Ohio grapes in order to be called an Ohio wine. Whereas in Alsace, if it's too dry, you can't actually irrigate because that's just part of the legislation that's there. And so those sorts of things are providing opportunities for wine growers in one area, um, such as central Ohio, to find different ways to adapt, whether it be plant new varietals, um, do something different. Um, whereas in Alsace, you have to be a little bit more innovative, if not challenge what is expected um, to be grown in that area. What role does taste and place play in their adaptations? And perhaps does it constrain the adaptations or does it facilitate them? I think it, I would say that it's a bit of both. Um, so if, for example, we look at Alsace and they have what's known as the seven noble grapes and um, two in particular that caught my attention were Gewürztraminer and Riesling. At minimum, if we look at the regional heritage and identity of Alsatians that on some level preference those kinds of grapes and those kinds of wines, there's this need to try and figure out how, not necessarily need, there's the perceived need or the, the need that I'm imposing on it that you're trying to find ways to continue to grow Riesling and Gewürztraminer for generations to come. And so one of my initial questions from the start, well, if it's too, if it's too warm for these cold weather varietals, what happens to that sense of taste or those particular wines that are linked to um, this long heritage? And what I found is that, you know, they are trying to figure out how to, again, through different pruning techniques or different ways of trying to equilibrize the, the balance that seems to be lost because of different weather and climatic factors. There's also other opportunities to potentially find ways to reconsider what's uh, an Alsatian grape 
Um, one of those being Pinot Noir, which is the only red that is really being tested and grown in that area. It's not an official Alsatian grape by definition, but wine growers are, are testing that out and are finding that because of changes in the weather and the environment, they're, they seem to be able to grow Pinot Noir very well. And so potentially in the future, maybe legislation could be maybe reshaped um, to include that as part of that um, Alsatian identity, as it were, that, that taste that we're expecting from there. By contrast, in central Ohio, if a wine grower finds that um, the rose of Petite Pearl or, I don't know, or Concord or something else just isn't growing very well, all they need to do is just rip those out and grow something else. And so mm. there again is, I th in that sense, I think we're um, what Heather Paxson calls reverse engineering. In that kind of sense, I feel like central Ohio is creating the sense of terroir and the sense of what is considered taste, right? It's not necessarily the taste of the wine more so than this taste of from this particular place and from these wine growers, we can expect something good, even if it's a different grape or a different blend mm -hmm. than what people have had in the past. Right. So in many ways in Alsace, there's a lot of structure around what's considered part of the taste in place, right? Um, there's some, a bit more flexibility for these new Ohio wine growers. Exactly. So shifting gears just a little bit, I definitely want to talk a little bit about food in general. And I'm curious to hear from you, from your perspective, what are some ways that people could become more closely connected to their food and to food production? As you mentioned before, or at the start of this, I'm, I've been involved with Slow Food Columbus for quite some time now. And I think at the root of that is this connection to what good, clean, and fair food is. Um, and that you know, that gets at the heart of just knowing where your food comes from. One of the things we're trying to do now is really educate the consumer just of where's that food coming from, even if you can't hit all three of those markers, just knowing where that where that originates is important. In addition to that, it's also getting in touch with, again, those recipes that you've had growing up in those different kinds of food. What is it that makes your parents' dish you know, that dish that you associate with um, as part of your own identity or experience versus a chef or someone else that prepares, or even yourself at that point. For example, I tried rolling my own egg rolls or cooking pensive by myself, and it just doesn't taste like the way that, um, that my mom makes it. You know, and so you have these different kinds of experiences with food. And I think trying to be in tune with that, that relationship and that part of your identity um, is important. I think that's, that's not to say that everyone thinks of food in that way in those symbolic kind of terms. Um, so in, in, in a material sense, I think it's also, again, knowing where the food comes from, who is making that, are they being paid fair wages? What does that mean if you're having to pay a few extra dollars? Are they getting that kind of return that in the end, it's a system where it should be good for both the producer and the consumer, right? Have that relationship. And in a sense, again, engage with your food and, and that history. From your perspective, is there a balance between the desire to produce your own and ensure that you are clean, you know, keeping the process fair and clean, as opposed to getting connected with different kinds of producers and different kinds of food networks? Yeah, that's a great way to frame that. Yeah, I think this balance between food sovereignty and doing it for yourself versus supporting mm. other people whose livelihoods are based on that. I think historically we can see that before we all used to grow our own food and then eventually became so specialized that other people are the ones doing that. And I think it, you, we've just got to try and find the balance between, between both. Um, I don't necessarily think that everyone has the time or the, the space even to produce their own food, but I think if you're able to, I think that's a great idea. 
you know, all the different posts we see of all the people who are proud of their breads and their little mini gardens that they've got that they didn't used to have and reconnect with the earth that we're, that we're taking from. Um, and at the same time, like you're saying, you know, there are people whose livelihoods are based on, on that. And I think everyone has different particular contexts in which they need to procure food. And, you know, if you have the choice between um, the big box stores and your local producer, and you have the means to support them, by all means, I think you should try and I would say you should try and support the local producer. It is a bit of a tough sell, I think, sometimes, especially when I think about slow food. To what extent does everyone have access to good, clean and fair food, regardless of whatever their opinions are or their conditions? Um, I think there are different ways that we can try and find that balance, even if, again, you can't hit all of the markers for it. It's important for us to reiterate the idea that food isn't just an object that you pick up at the store, you know, they have their own social lives and we can reimagine food networks, whether we're growing it ourselves, sharing seeds, or whether we're looking for growers that we want to support. But it takes a little bit of imagination. I mean, I'd love to hear how you got involved with Slow Food Columbus and, you know, perhaps how others could get involved. Yeah, so I um, I first moved to Central Ohio in 2010 um, to work at Denison University. And I think within the first two years, I had come across Slow Food Columbus um, through one of the annual dinners. So it's called Shake the Hand That Feeds You. And every year, except for um, this past year with the pandemic, there's this annual fundraiser that brings together the local farmer and you know invite folks to the farm or to meet the farmers and get to know who they are through the food that is being prepared by um, area chefs. And I, I like that idea of being able to try and connect with the food through the people who are producing it and the f- people who are preparing it. Um, and so I had joined the group as just as a general member and then eventually became secretary of the group and then chapter leader. And then just this past January, I uh, transitioned into the role of um, chair of special events and programming. And in all of that, I think there's this ideal, again, to reach good, clean, fair um, good being food that is good for you and good for the environment um, and clean for the environment as well. And then fair for the producer and the consumer. Again, I think it's it's an ideal. I think it's, um, you know, as a graduate student, um, especially at the time when I was starting out, it's, it was definitely an ideal, definitely something that was further out of reach, I think, in terms of being able to to afford that kind of lifestyle. What we've been trying to do over the last few years, though, is kind of remove some of that, what I see as a bit of tension with that perception of what slow food is versus what slow food can be. And I think that can just be, um, again, getting to know the producer, getting to know where your food comes from, and doing your best to just try and um, be mindful of the food system that you're a part of. So, and you have a lecture series that you've put together that is partially through APOP, but also through Slow Food Columbus. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that series on adaptation and resilience? Yeah, so um, I'm really excited about the the lineup for this particular series. Uh, the first one we did was on good, clean, fair, so the tenets of slow food. Last semester, we looked at equity, inclusion, and justice, which is this concerted pivot toward considering this, this role of diversity in our food and food systems and the people who participate in that. And so given especially the pandemic and just seeing how many restaurants have been struggling and and farmers, but then also seeing the ones who through that struggle have found innovative ways and means to become sustainable in some way and to find new pathways to again, reassert who they are as people and as businesses has been really inspiring. And so we've got a slate of folks who are excited to share their story 
and who I think will will have a lot to share, you know, just not only in terms of what they can tell other people, but even the synergies that seem to naturally have arisen among the people in the panel. And so all of these for the semester are on the second Tuesday of the month. And so we just had this past one that we just had on February 9th, we had Brian Snyder from the Initiative for Food and Agricultural Transformation, or also known as InFact, here at Ohio State. Um, we had Time Masami Smith from the Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio, um, or NACO, who have, over the course of the pandemic, have launched NACO Cuisine to help support their work. And then Andy Deus, who's the co-owner and co-founder of Columbus Food Adventures, who, again, um, with his wife, Pathia Wolf, together, they started this Trust Fall program to, again, support area businesses. And in talking to all these people, learning about the ways in which they've taken this unfortunate, difficult time and turned it around into something that is uh, meaningful to the people in the community is, again, really inspiring to hear um, them talk about. And, you know, when I met with them before the before this first event, it was just awesome to see the the relationship building that they were co-creating in that, in that virtual space. And so I think that's going to be the case as well with our remaining events for the semester. And I look forward to, you know, hearing alongside with everyone else, um, all of these varied stories. So if any of our listeners want to pop into these and listen to them, is there a good way for them to get access to it? Yes, they um, visit slowfoodcolumbus.org. That's the Slow Food website or the Slow Food Columbus website. Or if they even visit um, APOP's website, we've got links to the different registrations. It's completely free. Um, We just ask the people register in advance. And actually, new this semester, we're um, offering different giveaways um, for the people that do register and participate throughout the, the entire event, such as different giveaways and vouchers for these food and foodie experiences or books that are related to um, each of our speakers. And so I'm hoping that it's going to be an even more engaging uh, series this semester as the past two have already been. Great. Thanks. It's been great listening to you talk about your research and your story and how all of these different, you know, places and ideas have come together. And before we wrap up, I think, you know, maybe we can talk just a little bit um, about engaged anthropology as as a kind of anthropology. And to start, I'm I'm curious about this essay that you were a co-author on. It focuses on ethics and in particular, the ethics statement by the Association of Geographers, I believe, American Association of Geographers. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just curious first, like how did this essay come together? I think it was a course on ethnography and human geography that's taught in the Department of Geography with um, Dr. Kendra McSweeney. And, you know, we, we went through this whole semester of different ways in which you can engage with the communities that you're part of and what that means to be um, not just a human geographer, but just an ethnographer and and someone as part of that system. And one of the things that we were trying to just figure out through our discussions was, well, how do we know what we're doing is the right path, quote unquote. Um, And so she had talked about this paper that she had started writing and is there a way that we could try and update that and see um, what's happening in the field today? And so I had taken the lead with Dr. DeAndre Smiles, who's a recent graduate of that department as well, and working with our our peers in the class, coming from different perspectives from anthropology as well, and different kinds of geography and environmental sociology and, and the like. How can we look at this collective experience and talk about ethics in the grand scheme of things, not just in terms of what AAG is or is not necessarily doing, um, but what can we learn from the experiences of, of others in our, in our respective fields. 
So were you know, so the co-authors here? They were some of your classmates in that course. Is that right? Yep, they were all they were all graduate students at, in, from OSU. Yep. So I guess the hard question, like, how do we know if we're conducting <laughs> ethical research? You know, that's a that's a good question, and I think one of the conclusions, although I don't think we quite stated in in the article, um, we don't really know, right? And I think that's part of the part of the problem. Um, and I'll I'll say that tentatively. One of the things that we had gotten in our in the whole process of trying to write the piece was the sense that people before us have had to go through similar ethical quandaries and, and issues. And that's just on some level part of the process. And I think that's one of the things that we question, is that necessarily the right thing to do to graduate students? Um, I, I still think that's a question to pose. And um, the question then becomes whose responsibility is that? Is that the responsibility of organizations that we're part of to tell us what is ethical behavior? But at the same time, is that even feasible for them to, you know, have this blanket statement of what um, must be done or must not be done? Because we all come from, like you said earlier, different subfields and sub-subfields, right? They're different approaches. Is it the relationship with our advisors? Is all of that pressure to be put on them to teach us what needs to happen? But at the same time, they're not with us in the field. And so where do we get this, this practice or this knowledge of what ethical behavior is? And I think at the end of the day, it, my sense is that if you truly feel like you did the very best that you could um, to take care of your informants and to be mindful of all the different pitfalls that can occur and or you've resolved any issues that you have faced in the field that on some level you have engaged in ethical, meaningful research. Um, and I think that's for you to decide. I think that's for something for you to discuss with your committee or to you know the elders in the field or the people who have who have that institutional knowledge of what ethical behavior means. And in all of that, I think it's a learning process. And it's also, again, an engaged process where it's not just a book that we can read that gives us that answer. Ultimately, it's not necessarily, though I think we do kind of argue that it is a, a huge responsibility of um, our graduate programs and the organizations are part of to help provide that guidance. But it's this ongoing question that we need to have with each other, with our peers, also with our informants and the people that we work with, and everyone else in that system needs to be as on the same page as possible. There's always going to be a quandary like this. I mean, that probably doesn't have an answer, but maybe to ask the question a different way, when and where do our ethical reflections and considerations begin? Um, I would say it begins at the very beginning of the research process, right? It's in terms of what is this, what is the topic that I'm dealing with? Um, who are the people that I'm going to work with? Setting all of that stuff up, up front. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's on, on many levels why we have institutional review boards to help prompt those questions. And then as soon as you get into the field, it, it almost feels sometimes like there's an ethical quandary left and right um, they have to deal with, which may be a quandary for one person, but definitely not for another. And so as you go through that process, making sure, you know, again, first and foremost, that we're taking care of of our informants, if we're taking care of the environment that we're stepping into, we're on many levels being mindful of the species that we're interacting with. Um, I think there are different ways in which we try and understand that. And at the same time, I think, you know, ethics and ethical behavior is uh, very much a social and cultural thing. What may or may not necessarily be ethical in one field or country in the purview of a single IRB may be different in another context. And so trying to understand all those different entanglements is, is really important. I don't think there's a single 
easy answer. And I'm sure I'm, on many levels when I when I listen to this again, we're we're fumbling through the question or I'm fumbling through the question. But I do think in the end it it's how comfortable are you with yourself as as the researcher and the person engaged with it that is associated, you know, your name is associated with that research on many levels for um, graduate students, your advisors is associated with that, the department, you know, the university as a whole. And so when you have all that kind of pressure built on top of it, I think there's a sense that we try and do our best to not misrepresent ourselves and our research and the people that we're working with. There's two big points you made in there. I mean, it starts at the beginning, sort of this personal process of understanding your own ethical knowledge and disposition, all of those things. And then there's something else that happens when you're actually there interacting with people trying to do the research. It's almost like there's a new ethical quandary that starts. And, you know, as I think about those two points, all of a sudden there's a collaborative research practice that's just staring us in the face, right? If you want to really do collaborative research, then that second quandary should really be somewhere much uh, closer to the beginning. It should be, you know, as the questions are formed in an ideal sense. And I think this potentially leads to the last question, which is the one we've been having on this series a lot, which is just, what would your vision be for an engaged anthropology? Well, for me, I think it's it's this quest for understanding, understanding and celebrating human diversity in all of, all of its different forms. And so Engaged anthropology is making sure that we're gaining as many perspectives as possible and including that in our synthesis of what reality is. I think as part of just ethnographic practice, it means trying to engage in meaningful relationships with our informants, making sure that what we're about to write and put out into the world for others to read is as true as possible. And I know in my own work, I try my best to offer every opportunity for the informants to be as involved as they possibly want to be involved. Um, whether that be you know looking through photos and telling me what they don't want to ever be published or listening back to or reading a transcript that I wrote of the conversation we had and making sure that um, it's not taking out of context and that I'm framing it correctly. We're not you know hiding anything. I think it's just making sure that what is being put out there is is meaningful and and has a place in the ethnographic work that we're doing. I think engaged ethnography is not just is with the informants. I think it's also with, other ethnographers and other researchers and making sure that we're having that collaborative effort. Again, all in the quest of trying to figure out what is it that we are doing as humans on this earth and this in this place and time and what can we be doing um, into the future. Yeah, I really like that you brought up, you know, an engaged anthropology is also an engagement between researchers and between ethnographers. It's a common stereotype that we are sort of this lone wolf (laughs) researcher that is just going off into a place that no one else knows about. And that's sort of absurd to think about considering not only all of the help that we receive to get to those points and the work that we draw on to do it, but also the people that are there that we're really collaborating with and then the support that comes after that. I I do want to do a callback to our second episode when we had this conversation, um, because one thing that Taylor pointed out was that engaged research really creates something that the people you're working with can actually use themselves. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that idea. I'm glad you're doing the callback because there were something else that popped into my head was um, wanting to make sure that the work isn't just meaningful for me, but also for the informants as well. I think that also means 
doing something that's relevant. I might go into the field thinking I need to write about these certain topics, and I probably will, but also learning the different struggles that, that they're facing and how do we include that in, in that narrative? How do we make it worth their make it worth their while, right? I'm, I'm taking so much of their time and their energy and their own knowledge and history for my own benefit as the researcher and the person producing something. But what is it that I'm giving back and again, making a relevant contribution to their own life? I will say that as I was going through uh, my own research, one of the things that I wanted to do is make sure that I wasn't just taking up their time. And so I at least offered, and in many cases, it helped me as well um, when they accepted to work in the field alongside them. You know, I'm learning how to harvest grapes, but I'm also helping them harvest their grapes at the same time or pruning or bottling wine and, and that sort of thing. And so there's this experience that you have in this engaged process where you're on some level getting the knowledge that you need for your own research, but you're making these real human connections. I, I don't necessarily know if my own if my research is ever going to be important or meaningful to the lives and, and change the wine system as a whole or how we understand um, climate per se. But I think having those conversations and trying to understand where they where wine growers are and how they're understanding the world around them, I think can speak volumes into the future as we think about adaptation and resilience in the midst of all these different kinds of changes that um, everyone's dealing with. And then also to to add to that, I think in the process of developing these relationships, you know, whether or not they know it, they've got another patron for life. Right? I, I will always be supportive of the wines that they're producing. And I, I think a lot of my bias in terms of which wines I prefer happens to come from um, to come from these experiences that I've had, these, these human connections that are linked to the wine. Um, it's not just the wine itself that is part of my conceptualization of the taste of place of being in Central Ohio or Alsace, but it's the conversations that I've had. It's the likes that I'm putting on on Facebook and social media and the things that I'm sharing um, within my own network. And so building these relationships to whatever minimal amount my contributions will have on their direct lives, I think is that engaged ethnography and engaged anthropology um, can make a difference. There's been a, like a driving theme in all of these questions and your answers. It's, you know, that these are deeply personal things, like whether we're talking about food or identity, or place or climate and change, or just what you're going to purchase and why, like these are all very deeply personal things. And I, I, I think that's a great way to think about engaged anthropology. Well, it's been great having you on the podcast, Dr. Arsenio. Great conversation. And um, hope, I hope people will be able to tune into your lecture series and, and keep up with what you're doing here at Ohio State. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be part of this. As always, this podcast is hosted with support from the American Anthropological Association and in collaboration with the Ohio State Anthropology Department's Anthropology Public Outreach Program, also known as APOP. You can keep up with all of our APOP events and content on our social media at Ohio State APOP. You will also be able to find links to our previous episodes through our Instagram account, A Story of Us OSU, or through our website, u.osu.edu slash A Story of Us. Thanks again for listening.